Okay, it's Wednesday, everybody. It's Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. Blue Jays Phillies going to wrap up this two-gamer tonight down at Rogers Center before the uh, day off tomorrow. By the way, Bo Bichette playing right now for the Buffalo Bisons in a rehab assignment. Already has a couple of base hits to right field. He scored from first on an Ernie Clement double, so all systems appear to be go. Uh, he's DHing, as I said today, so I, I don't know if he has to... Spend some time in the field for the Bisons before returning to the Blue Jays, but looking good for this weekend in Cincinnati against the Reds. And sometimes you you, you have to have patience as a baseball fan. Blue Jays fan, so maybe be patient on Bo Bichette, perhaps. You know, maybe not, maybe needs a, an extra day. Maybe needs three games with the Bisons. Um, you certainly need patience when you watch the 2023 edition of the Toronto Blue Jays. When it comes to the offense specifically, still waiting for that offensive regression back to the mean and all the hits that are coming with runners in scoring position. Oh yeah. September is going to be fun or maybe not. Um, but you also have to have patience in the macro and, and nobody better exemplifies that than you say Kikuchi who didn't think that this guy was a sunk cost either in the middle of last season, by the end of last season, in the off season, there was talk of, Hey, maybe just offloading that salary to someone to somebody that, that saw some potential upside in him. The Mets were a potential match for uh, a Yusei Kikuchi trade. Instead, the Blue Jays held on to him and he's turned himself into like, without debate, the best starting pitcher in major league baseball since the all-star break. It's now six consecutive starts in which he's given up one earned run or fewer that ties the franchise record. It's stupid where the perception and the reality is for Yusei Kikuchi at this point in the season compared to where he was last year uh, with the Blue Jays. It's uh, the ace on the mound tonight, though, Kevin Gossman, as we talk to Ben Nicholson-Smith of the At The Letters podcast, Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Hello, Ben. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's it's going well. Uh, not as, as well as it's going for Yusei Kikuchi, though, just like in, in an overall sense this season, but specifically since the All-Star break. Um, I, I guess we have to believe that this is this is what we're going to get uh, every five days, at least this season. Like, are, are you are you sold on, on what he's trying to sell us this season? He's been great. He's been awesome. I think really one of the best stories of the season for the Jays and one of the reasons that their pitching staff has been so good. Um, and I think a reason for confidence going forward. I mean, to me still, when I'm looking at this starting rotation, I think Gosman, obviously the ace of the staff, I would still have more confidence in Jose Barrios than um, I would in, in Yusei Kikuchi and Barrios himself is another great bounce back story for the Jays. Um, and a reason for a ton of optimism going forward as well. But, you know, for Kikuchi, I think a reasonable expectation is that he can generate a lot of strikeouts, really avoid the walks that got him into so much trouble last season. He's still going to allow the occasional home run because he is in the strike zone more. And so, you know, from that standpoint, he's not an ace and doesn't have to be. But I think that if he's a number three or four starter, that's great. I mean, that is that is definitely beyond what you could have reasonably expected, even when the Blue Jays first signed him, to say nothing of where he was uh, at the beginning of this season at the end of last season. Yeah, he's been real, real good, uh, especially since the All-Star break. I mean, Jordan Hicks and Jordan Romano looked uh, as good as they've looked together. We haven't seen them a bunch together because, uh, yeah, Jordan Romano's been on the IL with the back thing. But, boy, that was a hell of a one-two punch out of the back end of the bullpen at the end of the game yesterday. 
they they both pick, uh, picked up three outs apiece. Does have me thinking, Ben, about how they will be used in the postseason and whether they will be extended beyond three outs. Could you see a scenario where the Blue Jays get maybe combined between the two? They they get nine outs, or I mean, like, is it possible you could get like twelve outs out of those dudes? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. You never know, and. Hicks has certainly done it before. So has Jordan Romano. I agree. I mean, I thought they looked great last night. Um, it was the best outing I've seen from Jordan Hicks without really um, much of a close second. And Romano looked awesome coming back. I mean, touching 100 miles an hour, great slider, great, you know, just incredible two-pitch mix there from the Jays' closer. So that's got to be really encouraging. And I think, you know, sure, there there might be situations where they do turn to those guys for three for four plus outs. But I think at the same time, you look at this group of relievers, especially with Trevor Richards coming back, maybe as soon as Friday, Chad green on his way back before too long as well. Then you add in Jimmy Garcia, Tim Mesa, Eric Swanson. It should be a deep enough group that maybe you're not over relying on any one pitcher. And of course, you know, if it's a winner take all game and your season literally ends the next day, that is exactly the time that you push your closer harder. But, you know, even in game one of a division series, for example, maybe you just stick with the three outs and maybe you just let the depth of this bullpen continue to be a strength for this team. Yeah, you mentioned the the, the names that, that could be returning to this Blue Jays team in, in Trevor Richards. And, I mean, Chad Green, we could see him in the major leagues for the first time this season coming off the, the Tommy John surgery. Of course, Nate Pearson was already sent down. Rosters expand on September 1st, although not to 40 anymore. It goes up to, to 28 and and Bowden Francis is currently on the roster. He's been good this year, but like a, a pretty uh, obvious option candidate if uh, if you need to to clear up some some roster space. And the Blue Jays now back with eight relievers. Like, is there is there any debate about like the 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 guys that could be going down? Like Francis, I I see as an obvious guy that's going to be optioned down. Like I said, I mean, is Jay Jackson getting back on the bus again? Like, what what do what do the Blue Jays do when they have to free up? I guess two bullpen spots. Yeah, I think it's Francis and Jackson. And, you know, there's always a chance, too, that there could be an injury, um, at at which point things um, really clarify themselves. So um, I I think just given the fact that Francis and Jackson have options, that becomes a pretty easy call. And it's really, you know, it is a reflection of the depth of this team, that they have, you know, Alec Manoa and Nate Pearson at AAA, and they have Jackson potentially pretty soon at AAA. Like, this is a really good pitching staff, and Kikuchi is a huge part of that. Um, we saw it last night on full display against, and I know the Phillies have had their issues this, this year as well, but mm-hmm. that's still a good offensive team. That's still a really good lineup when you have Real Muto and, and Trey Turner you know, hitting 6-7. It's a, it's a really good team. The Jays completely shut them down. So, you know, this is a, it's kind of weird. Like, we've gotten used to watching a uh, different type of Blue Jays team, and it doesn't undo the fact that, this ball club has really underperformed a lot of the time and kind of disappointed for much of the season. And, you know, it's been a frustrating year, I think, in a lot of ways for the Jays, but their pitching is really good. And, uh, you know, those, those returning arms um, just add to the depth of a pitching staff that's already been good. Yeah, I, I mentioned the Bobichette rehab assignment that is currently uh, happening right now between uh, Buffalo and Rochester and the, and the couple of hits and him DHing today after the rainout yesterday. So the Bisons do have a game tomorrow, so it's possible, I guess, Bo could could play shortstop a bit tomorrow before he returns to the Blue Jays and joins them in, in Cincinnati. Like, did the rain-up 
uh, Rainout mess with your expectations as far as his return, or, or do you, are you still bullish? You think on on him being in the Blue Jays lineup on Friday? Well, I think I have a pretty good guess as to what Bo is going to be pushing right. for. Um, so. I think the chances are pretty good he's in the lineup. Uh, we'll hear from John Schneider pretty shortly on this and learn a bit more. Um, in the meantime, you know, there are a couple ways that they could do it, right? Like you could have Bichette play, you know, five, six innings of defense and then have him, you know, hop on a flight or get in the car service to Cincinnati and, and be there with the team for Friday. Or you could have him play the full nine innings of defense at AAA tomorrow and have Friday be a bit of a rest travel day and activate him Saturday. Um, or you could simply just say, you know what? We trust our guy. He's a major league shortstop. He doesn't need, you know, he doesn't need all this practice necessarily. Um, as long as the bat's good to go, we trust his ability to field and uh, just activate him and, and skip uh, Thursday altogether. So a few different ways they could look at this. Obviously the rain out, not ideal. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's also possible that they could DH Pichette a little bit in the early going as he returns. So, you you know, if he is back on Friday, you could DH Paul DeYoung, or you, you could DH Bichette, have Paul DeYoung start at shortstop, and then figure it out from there. Uh, so I mentioned that rosters expand September 1st. Um, it, it just got my wheels spinning that I, I know, yeah, the rosters don't go to 40 men anymore, which used to be brutal, especially before the, the three batter minimum for relievers, that it was like these games would last forever. But like now we do have that rule and we got the pitch clock. And I kind of want to see uh, maybe maybe not 40 men, but like Addison Barger and Aurelvis Martinez are both on the 40 man roster. So could have conceivably been September call ups with the, with only the two spots and like the very capable relievers that the Blue Jays have also on the 40 man I, do you see a scenario where we see those guys called up to the major league team in September? Aurelvis, uh, I find it a little harder to imagine, um, but you never know. And Addison Barger, uh, he's pushing. He's, he's getting close. He's been pretty close all season. Um, well, you know, except for the time that he missed, but he, he began the year um, as kind of that next wave and he's played pretty well. So I, I think you got to be open-minded. Like you said, once guys are on the 40 man, I mean, it's, you're you're really just a phone call away or an injury away. Um, you know, I do think there's. It's also equally possible that you know Bichette and Kiermaier come back. Okay, Lucas and maybe David Schneider are the ones to lose their roster spots when Bichette and Kiermaier return as soon as Friday. So then you expand by one position player. I think you're probably bringing a guy like Lucas or, or David Schneider back to the major leagues. Um, not that it's a, not that it's a, a question of you know how many days you spent in the majors, but I, I do think there's an element of you know Nathan Lucas has been around this team all year. Are you just going to have Addison Barger come up out of nowhere? Um, is that going to be good for his development? In some ways, yes. In some ways, maybe he's better off in in AAA for a little longer. So uh, yeah, some interesting things to look at there. Um, and my guess at this point is that extra spot goes to someone like Schneider. Yeah, it's it's interesting also to think about what this optimized Blue Jays lineup looks like when it's fully healthy. Yeah, he's, yeah, Kevin Kiermaier, he's coming back. Um, in, in my ideal Blue Jays lineup, honestly, the Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermaier do not play together. Like, uh, I, I think maybe they alternate time in center field, but like, yeah, obviously for me, Kevin Kiermaier is getting the majority of the playing time, and Dalton Varsho is like a defensive replacement. And 
Uh, Whit Merrifield is in left field. And the way Kevin Biggio swinging the bat uh, against righties, like it's, it's hard not to put him in there. This is a long sample now we're looking at, Ben. 49 games where he's hit 271 with a 377 on, on base and a 466 slug. I, it, is it possible that the Kevin Biggio looks closer to the guy that was honestly one of the most reliable Blue Jays hitters in 2020, a weirdo season? But yeah, we, we have seen it from Kevin. Yeah, really, since the beginning of May, I looked at this last night, his OPS, not including last night's game, was 783 since May 1st. I mean, that's a really good result, and that's an extended period of time. Now, I don't think you want to overexpose him, and I know you're not suggesting that, but I don't, I don't think you want to overexpose him to the point that you know he's in there six days a week or anything like that. But against right-handed starters, um, he can give you a good at-bat, and you know, really, you look at the bottom of this Blue Jays lineup, and it's pretty underwhelming most yeah. nights, especially now. So if you have Kevin Biggio in there hitting 7th or 8th and Kiermaier ninth, like it just adds a little bit of length. And, you know, if, if you had something like, a, yeah, Biggio, Davis Schneider, Kiermaier, seven, eight, nine on certain days, um, you know, that, that plays. Uh, and, you know, that's just one configuration. I, I'm not trying to pinpoint the Jays on that. But the, adding some depth to the bottom of this order would go a long way because we all know the top of the order hasn't exactly produced the way that we would have expected. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested to see Davis Schneider. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe he's not in the lineup again today, but it's back-to-back games that he hasn't been in the lineup against the righties. And I mentioned the strong play of, of Kevin Biggio. But, yeah, his days might be numbered with the roster crunch that's coming, with the healthy guys coming back. Like, and, and I know he looks a little bit more exposed recently than he did, well, obviously, over the three games at Fenway Park. But I'm still intrigued by, like, the, the ability to work account and take the occasional walk. I know uh, it, a lot of those at-bats have ended in strikeouts, but not all of them. Uh, and he had the big double the other day uh, at Rogers Center. What do you expect, I mean, in the coming days? It could be one day. Like, this could be the final day of, of Davis Schneider. How do, you, how do you think the Blue Jays now view him, uh, at least in, in the micro of this season? Well, I, I always think there's some value just in getting to the major leagues and having the chance to either have those initial successes, which David Schneider certainly did, or to have some failures early on and learn from those, maybe go back to the minors for a bit, um, and then and then you're, you're a little bit more prepared the next time that opportunity comes up. And so I, I think that, if nothing else, Schneider's had the chance to experience the major league level, experience both some success and some brief struggles. Um, and so the next time he comes up, um, if he is indeed optioned um, at some point, which is not a certainty, I mean, they have different paths that they could take, but either way, his, his playing time would diminish. Um, and, and I think that he's showing the Blue Jays that he can have some big hits at this level. And that's not uh, easy to do. It's obviously really good pitching that they face every single day. Um, and so I think that he can be someone who gives you league average production. So his league average 725 OPS, something like that this year. Um, I think David Schneider could probably give you that. And that's, that's not nothing, right? That's a lot higher than where Dalton Varsho and Santiago Espinal are. Mm-hmm. No, are you with me on, on the, the Varsho playing time being diminished as we re- return to a, a fully healthy Blue Jays lineup? Do you think he's going to lose some, some starts here? Yeah, I think he will. Um, I, I think he'll be in there pretty regularly. I think he's, a, he's still going to be counted on as a big contributor for this team. But realistically... If you don't hit in the major leagues, you don't play unless you are 
at a premium, premium position like catcher, shortstop, or center field. And to some extent, Varsha was a center fielder, and he's a very, very good outfielder. No one's questioning that. Mm-hmm. I know you're not. But, you know, I, I just think, you know, when you have the option of going Biggio, Merrifield as your second base left field combination, and then maybe you go Kiermaier in center and Springer in right, like you can have Varsha come off the bench on on those days. Um but at the same time, like, I don't know. I, I think he's going to be in there four days a week. I don't, I don't think he's a bench player. I think he's, he's someone who's going to be in there pretty regularly. But if there's a better matchup, you know, if you're, if you're facing a tough wide, a lefty, you want to get – here's the thing, though, Ben. It's like, you know, you look at who would be playing in place of him, yeah. and it's like David Schneider or Santiago Espinal. Give, give me, yeah, give me either one of those guys, though. Like, yeah, honestly, really? what we've seen from, from Dalton Varsho, I, I, at least I know I'm going to get a, a competitive bat out of David Schneider. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is where there was room for the Jays to go out and add another bat. Like, and, you know, Espinal and Schneider, like, I, I mean, Espinal clearly a below average hitter in the context yeah. of Major League Baseball. And Schneider, like I said, maybe average. So you're making a trade-off, right? Do you want the, the potential of a bit better at-bat with David Schneider, or do you want the potential of a, a you know, better defensive player in Dalton Varsho? So you can kind of pick your poison there. I don't think there's any perfect answer, um, but uh, I think we'll see a fair dose of, of Varsho. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll, we'll see how uh, his uh, lack of performance offensively impacts the Blue Jays' decision-making in the offseason. Before I let you go, um, yeah, I, I was uh, annoying lots of people yesterday, you included, sending out my f- fictional uh, trade uh, proposals for the Blue Jays this offseason. And uh, yeah, I even tweeted it out, the Vlad for Juan Soto thing. And maybe we don't have to talk about that in, uh, specifically. But yeah, v- Vlad Jr., everybody... I think has the same opinion of his season that it's, yeah, it's above average offensively. He plays a position in which the bar offensively is much higher than he is providing. And you can, you can go out and acquire the offense that honestly he's provided this season pretty easily uh, out in free agency. And Brandon belt was a guy that was almost retired and they've gotten more offensive production, albeit not as often uh, in, in the lineup, uh, but they've gotten it uh, out of Brandon belt. There's all, there's two more years of, of team control. For Vlad Jr., he's arbitration eligible again, and the number is going to continue to go up. Um, he he's not worth the money that he's going to be earning if he's if this is the player that the, like quite frankly, this is not a twenty five million dollar player, which is like the the places we're headed to in in arbitration. Is there like, is there a legitimate case? Not just me who has to fill two hours of radio time uh, every day talking about the Blue Jays. Like, is there a, legi- a legitimate case for the Blue Jays to maximize their assets? And 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 if if somebody's a willing partner in trade with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., yeah, trading him and then backfilling a first base power hitter. Well, okay. So I like the open mindedness here, and I like the I like the you know willingness to think really, really big picture and, and, you know, not get too attached to any one player or idea. So I, I applaud that, that line of thinking. I do think though that I would have to disagree with you in saying that Vlad Jr. is not a $25 million player. Like I think he is. And I think that the market in major league baseball would reflect that without a doubt. I mean, if the blue Jays made the, in my opinion, massive, massive, and I know we're all in hypotheticals here, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, if they decided to non-tender Vlad Jr. and make him a free agent, yeah. like, of course he's signing for way more. than He's probably signed at 
$300 million deal tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think he's absolutely a $25 million player because teams value the things that he does, whether that's, you know, hitting, uh, you know, incredible, uh, you know, exit velocities, uh, having good control of the strike zone. His strikeout rate is, is low again this year. And we watch on such a granular level that every time he chases a slider off the plate, it's like the sky is falling. But, you know, if you zoom out, he's got really good control of the strike zone, especially for his age. He absolutely clobbers the ball. He plays a really good first base. He posts every day. Like, to me, this is absolutely a 25 30 $35 million player. And I, I think you want to build around this guy. I don't think you're looking for reasons to get rid of him. So, so you think it's it's perfectly fine? I mean, it is fine. Um, but like, it's it's a good idea to build your offense around a guy who appears to be like he's a, got a one fifteen OPS plus this year. He had a one fifteen OPS plus in twenty twenty. Although, like, who knows what to make of that the the sixty game season? Uh, his debut year was a, a little bit less than that. Last year, he was OPS plus at one thirty three, but that's an eight eighteen OPS. Like, let's say maybe last year's is, is like you know what you could expect out of the guy. Like, is, is it, is it a good idea to build your franchise around that guy and maybe extend him for, for upwards of who knows, like $400 million? Well, I'm not saying they should extend him. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I don't think now is the time to, to extend, um, Vlad jr. Although you can make a case that it is, but you know, I, I, I'm just saying, don't be in a rush to trade him. I think he's a great player. I think great things are ahead for Vlad Jr. Um, if you look, okay, like, first of all, I just don't think it's a good idea to build your offense around any player or any two players or any three players. And the Padres are a perfect example of this where, you know, the Padres have an amazing, amazing top four with Soto Tatis and Bogart and Machado. And you couldn't ask for anything better. And yet, they still can underperform because it's such a depth game, as, as you know, and it's such a, such a game where you need to have so many players come up and contribute in the course of a season. So you build a good offense by having layers and waves of good players and by not depending on any one individual. But to the extent that one individual can impact that, I really think that Vlad Jr. is, is short on the list of, of guys that you look for. And I'm not saying he's number one. And there was a time a couple of years ago that he looked like he might be the hitter that you would want in major league baseball. And that's not at all where things are at. I'm not saying otherwise, but you know, you get past the Sotos and the Olsons and the Jordan Alvarez, although, you know, you can make a case there that Vladdy is probably ahead of Jordan. You get past the Kyle Tuckers, you get past uh, the Acunas. I don't know. Like I think Vladdy's probably in the top 30 of hitters that you'd want in major league baseball moving forward for the next two years. And it's not to say that this year isn't disappointing because it is, but I think as you move ahead, there's not a lot of hitters that I would look at and say, I'm confident that guy's going to be better than Vladdy Jr. I was going to let you go, but then you, you just said that Vlad's better than Jordan Alvarez? Well, here's the thing. Jordan Alvarez is like an elite, elite, elite hitter, obviously. Yeah. But if you were to project like per plate appearance, you'll take Jordan Alvarez, right? Uh-huh. But how confident are you that Jordan Alvarez is going to play 100 games next year. Like, I'm, I'm very confident that Vladdy Jr. can play in the next two years before he hits free agency. I'm very confident he's going to play 250 to 300 games. Whereas Jordan Alvarez, history would tell us, and, you know, I haven't seen the medical information, but I'm not sure I'd want to. History would tell us that, you know, he's going to miss a month a year. So that's where I say, you know, per plate appearance, you want Jordan. But, 
per season, you might want Vlad Jr. when you look at the age difference and when you look at their history of being healthy. Oh, dude, now now we've really opened up a can of worms. I know i got to let you go. i got to let you get to John Schneider, but it's like, what do you prioritize? The 162-game season, which, yeah, we all watch, and you need it to get into the postseason or the high-end level talent, which Jordan Alvarez obviously provides. It. Like, Granted, like hopefully the injuries that occur are during the regular season, not in the postseason. Yeah, that's that's an interesting conversation. I'll let you go, though. We, we can have that conversation next time. How about that? <laughs> sure. And, I mean, obviously the point is, I mean, they're not going to trade Vladdy for no. Jordan. It's just, I mean, they're not going to – I don't think they're going to trade him for anyone. But I, I think that, you know, and, and like, co- try to come up with a list and, and, and send it to me because I'd love to see it. But I just don't think there's that many players in baseball that you'd be like – like, even good offensive players, like Vladdy versus Adelise Garcia. Who do you want next year? Like, I'm taking Vladdy 10 times out of 10. I really am. His control of the strike zone, his exit velo numbers, his age, I'm taking Vladdy 10 times out of 10. So, you know, even though it has been a disappointing year, if we put that aside and we look at this from the, from the same standpoint that, like, a, a rival front office executive would, they're going to look at what he's about to do going forward. And I think you look at the age, you look at the history of health and the exit velo numbers to control the strike zone, this is a very, very good player. Yeah. Control of the strike zone when it comes to, yeah, not striking out a ton, especially for a guy that has at least the power potential. But, yeah, I want to see the 100-walk guy again. Man, I I miss that guy. (laughs) It was nice, right? 2021 was awesome. Yeah. Oh, well. All right, Ben. Uh, Great job. Thanks, buddy. See ya. You got it. Thanks. Uh, It's Ben Nicholson-Smith at the letters Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. That is, yeah. In a single plate appearance, righty, lefty, whoever the pitcher is, like, who's not taking Jordan Alvarez? And, yeah, missed some time this year and played 130-ish games last year. Vlad Post, as Ben says, like, Blue Jays have done a good job of going out and acquiring guys that play. Starting staff is just littered with them. Bo Bichette, I mean, he's going to miss 10 games, but, like, that is the rarity. Guy looked like his knee exploded. He wants to play every single day. He's been doing a pretty good job of it throughout the course of his career. Vlad, same deal. That's 100%. That's a, that's, that deserves mentioning. That is a significant attribute in a sport in which there is great attrition. You play every day. And it's not football. It's not a contact sport. But, man, it wears on the human body to take the field, especially on an artificial service like we have here in Toronto. That's, and Vlad's been great at that. But, yeah, when you get to the postseason, that goes away. You got built-in off days. It is about the high-end talent. So what do you? how do you build your team? Is it for the 162-game grind of the regular season? Or is it for the postseason? I mean, look at this Phillies team from a year ago, 187 games. Because they didn't play great defense and the pitching staff was over, overexposed. Get into the playoffs, you shorten the rotation. You expand the bullpen rolls. They make it all the way to the World Series. It's one of the most interesting conversations you can have in uh, the sport of baseball. All right. Uh, More baseball coming up after 4 o'clock with our man, Adnan Verk. But when we come back, we're counting down the days before Canada takes to the court in Indonesia for the FIBA World Cup with a chance to qualify for the 2024 Olympics. When they do so, they will do it without Jamal Murray opted out today. We'll talk to Doug Smith of the Toronto Star next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. 
Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sports Night 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. And uh, don't say that the golden generation of Canadian men's basketball has gone wanting. They just won the DBB Super Cup in Germany after a comeback win in the final against the Germans, highlighted by R.J. Barrett, who went ham. He uh, scored 31 points on 13 of 14 shooting. He went four for four from beyond the arc as well. Uh, Team Canada is going to play couple games in Spain, and then off to the FIBA World Cup at the end of the month. No Jamal Murray, though. He did not recover from last season's deep postseason run in time, so will not travel with the team for the World Cup. Let's talk to uh, Doug Smith, the Toronto Star. How's it going, Doug? Thanks for doing this. No problem, Ben, anytime. Uh, so where, where's your level of surprise here? Like, he didn't travel to Germany. There was, like, optimistic uh, things said, and then ultimately the plug pulled. Where, where's your level of uh, surprise on this? I can't say I'm awfully surprised. Uh, you know, there was a glimmer of hope that he would get through the last week and, and feel good enough to play one of the two games in Spain and then all the games in the tournament. But I, I, when, he, when, when the team left and he didn't go the first time, I, then it became, I became a bit skeptical. I wasn't overly surprised at all this morning to get the call when he was not going to play. Do you think, like, this was I, – I, I, yeah, I hate to put you in a position of, like, guessing what people thought, but, like, I, I, when I did see this, I, I did wonder if Jamal Murray wanted to put on the, you know, the, the brave face of saying, hey, I, I really want to be there, but just, like, clearly I, I can't risk this upcoming season considering my injury history, considering the, the championship run – I just had that this this kind of makes everybody feel better, but this was always going to be the case and that if they go to the Olympics in 2024, that, that it puts him back in good good standing with, with Team Canada, not that he wouldn't have been. No, I understand what you're saying, Ben, and I don't think so. I think he legitimately wanted to play and couldn't. And that I think, are they being extra careful? Well, yeah, they are. The, there are 15 guys who were on the three All-NBA teams last year, and two of them are playing in the, in the World Cup, Luka Doncic and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So it, it's not, I'm not surprised, but I, I do know that he wanted, he wanted to give it his best shot. And I think it was a legitimate best shot. And it just didn't work out. Uh, it is, it's curious to think about what the decision-making would have been if this was uh, the Olympics. It's not, though. It's the World Cup. Uh, you you got to finish top two in the Americas to, to end up at least with, in this round of qualifying for uh, the world or for the Olympics, which are next summer, um, is it, is there like a, a way to better do this? Because you mentioned it, like there's there's very few like high high level superstars uh, in the NBA that are participating in this World Cup. Like, is there a, a better time frame to put it? Because it's like it's not that close to to training camps, and it's like still too close to the end of the season. Like, is there a better time frame for this thing? No, I think it's the perfect time. Actually, uh, the free agents are all decided. I'm sure there are two teams that played until June, but they're just two, um, and 28 didn't. And I think, I, you know, obviously we look at the Americans as the thing. Right? That's uh, the, the gold standard of teams that don't get the marquee players. Canada to some degree, but everybody else plays. And so I don't think, and I think in, in North America, we're so focused on the Olympics. It's, it's a little bit 
it's kind of crazy because in the basketball world, the World Cup is big, bigger than the Olympics. It's mm. much harder to get, much easier to get into the World Cup and much harder to win it. It's much easier to get in the Olympics and much harder to get, to get in the Olympics and to win them. Mm. But in the basketball world, the World Cup is it. And in North America, we're, we're spoiled because we see the Olympics as the thing. When the Olympics, frankly, are a basketball tournament among a multi-sport event. Mm-hmm. World Cup, they're, they're it. it that's, that's the basketball thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and it's not like Team Canada can complain because no Kristaps Porzingis for, for Latvia. He's got plantar fasciitis. No Victor Webanyama for France, who are also in their group. Like, what does this do... In your, in your mind, Doug, for Canada's chances to, to finish top two in the group and then uh, eventually finish top two out of the Americas at the World Cup? I still think it's really, really hard, Ben. I, I, I get that people think Canada's got this really great team, and they do. It's, it's hugely talented. But only two of Canada, France, and Spain can get to the quarterfinals. And that's basically where you got to be to be the top two, well, the top two from the Americas to get in the Olympics. And it, it's all going I think it's all going to come down to the first game they play against France. They basically have to win that game. And whether they can, France is pretty good. You know, uh, Morney plays well for Frida. Nando Colo is a, like a legitimate high-level point guard. Rudy Gobert is there. So that's the one. That, that's the game. I think they can do it. I think they and Spain will be the two teams that come out of the eight teams in, in Jakarta to go to Manila for the quarterfinals. But it's, they got to beat France in that first game, and that's that's basically what what it boils down to. Yeah, I mean you got to hit the ground running. So yeah, it's it's yeah. it's. It's hard not to, yeah, look at these exhibition games that they're playing in Germany, and then uh, I guess starting tomorrow in Spain, and 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 take real things away from them. And I know that the the ones in Germany were tough to find. Like I did find a stream for one of them that I watched a little bit. There was no there's no announcer sound. Um, but yeah, you look at the box score and you look at some of the highlights and. Boy, R.J. Barrett, like I said, his his line jumped off the page. Is there anything to take away from going one and one uh, against Germany and I guess blowing out, what was it, New Zealand was the third game that they played? No, it, it, there's 100% something to be taken away from it. I talked to Jordi Fernandez this morning, actually, in Spain, and we, I agree with him. He said that Germany is probably a top five team in the world. The two Wagners from Orlando, Daniel uh, Seitz, uh, uh, Dennis Schroeder, that's a very, very good team. I think finished top six at the, at the top four, maybe top five at the Olympics last in 2020. To beat them, so in the first game, they got killed in the first half, but they were tied with a minute to go. Then they beat them in the second time they played them. Those are big games. And I think they've settled on, Canada settled on a starting lineup now. They play about eight or nine, maybe 10 deep. And I think Spain will be a huge test. Spain's the number one team in the world for a reason. Uh, they're always, always good. And, but I think these are these are huge, big tune-up games. Because like you said, Ben, they got to hit the ground running. They cannot give up that first game. Mm. That's the bottom line. So that's interesting. You talked to Jordy this morning who had to get yeah. acclimatized to this program rather quickly with the Nick Nurse news. How, how, how do you think it's coming along as far as uh, being under his stewardship and, and understanding the players and, and the style that they want to play? I think it's come along really, really well. I talked to a couple of players, and again, I've talked to Jordy often. He's very calm. He's not excitable at all. It's very much not about him. It's about the team getting better. I think mean, he's, he's got vast international experience. He's been the Spanish program for almost a decade. He coached the Olympics with Nigeria for Mike Brown last, the last time in 2020. He's been in the NBA for 12 or 15 years. And he's got a huge amount of respect from the players. 
and he, he, he he's always making it about them and the program and making the group better. I asked him, I said, you know, you guys obviously have a great guard, or sort of guard-oriented with Jay and RJ. And the first thing he said was, no, you know what, we go 10 deep, but we got we got a guard. Hmm. We defend well. We got a lead door, Dylan Brooks, uh, Dwight Powell. Kyle Alexander from Milton is like one of the biggest surprises, I think, in the first few games. Really good pro. Um, and it fit really, funny, really, really well. So I think Jordy was the right choice. And I know that there are people who suggest why didn't they go hire a Canadian. Well, there wasn't any time. They had to get a guy who had all the FIBA and NBA experience who was available on short term, on a short notice, who could reach these guys. And I think, well, I know that Jordy has done that. Mm. You know, uh, RJ is is a kind of an interesting guy to talk about. Obviously, with the 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 Team Canada connection, the lineage with his his father still being in charge of the program there. But like, also his international resume, right? Like with the juniors, they beat the Americans. They had a huge victory. Like, I, I kind of feel like he goes under the radar, and maybe that's the you know the nature of 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 who he is and his draft class and the notable names that went ahead of him. But yeah, he I, you almost forget how much of a factor he could be on the international stage. I think it gets back to there's not enough people in Canada to pay attention to these group championships. They won a gold medal in, in, in the under-19s. But RJ and Shea were on the team. They, beat, they killed the Americans. He had a, like a 40-point game in Egypt to win a championship. Mm-hmm. I, this is a, uh, RJ's a, he's a really, really good basketball player. He's a great FIBA player because he's strong. He's a bull. You watch him on Sunday against Germany. He just beat people up getting to the rim. And in the, in the FIBA, you can do that. You can't get away with that in the NBA, but in the FIBA, you can, and he did. And I think he's going to be a big key because his physicality and his knowledge of how to play FIBA. He's been playing it since he's been 14 years old, probably. Mm-hmm. He knows he knows what the game is like, and he can adapt to it. As, you know, obviously, you're going to get crap officiating. You're going to get bizarre stuff happen. Yeah. He seems, he's been through it all. It's not going to phase him. And he's a big, he's a big, big key for this team. Yeah, uh, maybe some of that b- bizarre officiating can go in the favor of the Canadians this time around. That'd be nice. Um, it always will. Some, <laughs> at some point, it always will. <laughs> All right, uh, I do want to talk a little Raptors with you before we let you go, Doug. The, I mean, Shams a couple of weeks ago had the report about hey, the the Atlanta Hawks making an offer for Pascal Siakam. We, we've still not seen an extension. Uh, between the, the Raptors and Siakam going into the final year of his deal. How, how do you see this one playing out? Like, do you, do you think we get to training camp and, you know, the regular season with Siakam uh, without an extension? Uh, yes, they do. I think they'll start the season with no extension. They can negotiate it during if they want. I, I think I saw the Shams report, and I thought that's really good for rewriting June <laughs> because that's what it was. And it was, yeah, in June and July, the Raptors talked to Atlanta, they talked to Indiana, they talked to Portland, they talked to Orlando about a bunch of deals. Maybe Atlanta had the best deal, but the, the report, and I, I give Shannon's credit because everything old becomes new again. Yeah. The report was the same thing people have been writing for months, and the stock was in draft compensation. Well, what is that? <laughs> so, you know, I think people just get a little bit, and I, you know, I know there was a, a bunch of social media outcry that Pascal on some Insta facey thing or whatever it's called. They couldn't see him when the Raptors were out there working out in LA as a group. Well, he was there. Hmm. He, he was there with the team. He worked out as he has for the last two or three years after the, after the group did individually. He played on a team in that league with Fouché and Scotty uh, Barnes. There's, there's a lot of much ado about nothing with Pascal right now. And I do think the season will start 
and we'll go up pace and see what happens. Now, could something happen in February? Absolutely. Hmm. But right now, I don't think anything's going on. Yeah, and you don't think that would be an issue, you know, uh, personalities going into a season uh, without an extension and, and perhaps not feeling like the, the organization feels that you're deserving of a max extension? No, I, don't, I, I think it would be, it'd be less impactful on Pascal, who wants to stay in Toronto for the rest of his career, as it would be on Gary Trent, who may also go into the season with no extension mm-hmm. on a one-year deal and has not shown up at Summer League or Los Angeles. Maybe that's the more maybe that's the more troublesome thing that huh. fans should be concerned about than Pascal, who wants to play in Toronto and is a really really good NBA player. Oh, can, can we can we explore that a little bit more, Doug? Like, what 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 are you well, I- implying about Gary Trent Jr.? Well, I'm just I'm not implying anything. I'm saying that people made this big hullabaloo about Pascal not going to summer league and not being able to say this where he was, and we, we conveniently forget that Gary Trent has been in Miami all summer and did not go to Vegas and did not go to Los Angeles. Hmm. Now, maybe the lack of a contract suspension right after he opted in, did that get to him? Is that a, was that a, a conversation the Raptors that he had that didn't work out to his liking? But, uh, again, it's, it's, I think that could very much be much ado about nothing as well. But in the same vein, if, you, if people get all concerned about what Pascal's happening, or what's happening with the other guys who's in the same situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um... The, the situation has changed a little bit in Philadelphia with the James Harden video that came out of China a couple of days ago. And, yeah, uh, it's, this is a, an annual thing with, with James Harden uh, and, and the drama that exists off the court with him. Is it, is it, does this impact the Raptors in any way? Like, can they take advantage of the situation in any way other than, yeah, like a, a, a division rival, a conference rival is, is in turmoil? Is there, is there any way for them to you know, play vulture here in a potential trade? I think the only thing that the Raptors would be interested in or looking at would be the, be the third team in either a Harden or a Damian Lillard trade. Maybe pick up a player or a couple picks by helping to facilitate it, by moving pieces that people, people need to fit money-wise to make a bigger trade work. But there's certainly there is no, there's absolutely no interest in a billion years in the Raptors looking at James Harden. We, we may as well come by that right now. But as a facilitator to a multi-team trade, why wouldn't you listen? Maybe pick up a couple of picks and maybe a useful backup guy to help another trade work. Man, I think they would be certainly interested in listening and then see what it can go from there. But yeah, but you know, the Sixers will be in turmoil. Yeah. And they will they will be there will be huge issues with Joe Embiid because if Harden's not there, you wonder what that how good that team's gonna be. And can they be even competitive in these with just Embiid and, and uh, Maxi? I don't know. Uh, probably not. So that's going to be. A, uh, I, I, I don't think that Nick Nurse called his agent to get me out of this deal, but I wouldn't blame him if he did. Yeah, well, and especially when you think about how this is going to work out, because I, I know, like, listen, James Harden's not the same player he once was. Yada yada yada, and you know, Daryl Morey's going to talk uh, tough talk, but. If, if James Harden wants to go to L.A. and play for the Clippers, it feels like that's where James Harden's going to go. It's just like that's the history of, of the league that these guys get their way, and that means that the Sixers are not getting a ton in return that's helping them in 2023-24, which I, I'm with you about the Embiid thing. Like, it, the, we, we talked after, after the uh, Kawhi uh, situation in 2019. Hey, how can the Raptors set themselves up to be in a position to capitalize on, on, on another potential disgruntled star like, is that the real target the, the, the Raptors should be thinking about, Joel Embiid? 
I think every team in the league should be thinking that too. That same thing. Right? Okay, if this thing goes south in December, uh, November, December, January, can you can you start hovering around Embiid to see what you can do next summer? Because if this thing goes as it will south, he's going to want out. I, I know. I, I believe that hundred percent in my mind that he will said, "Okay, look, I gave you guys." The process was flawed, but I gave you everything I had, and you did nothing. You you botched Ben Simmons. Yep. Now you botched James Harden. You botched Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Which, that team was really really good. Yes. Really really good. And they they bailed on that summer after the Raptor shot, after the Kawhi shot. So if I'm Embiid, I definitely want out. And if I'm 29 other teams, I'm hovering around in the middle of the year saying, look. When it's time to go, hey, we're here. <laughs> yep, and no doubt the Raptors are one of those. We'll, we'll see what the Sixers' sure. ap- appetite would be to, to trading inside the conference, inside the division. Uh, Doug, appreciate the time, man. Thanks. No problem, Ben. Jack down the road. Sounds good. Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. A couple of things. Yeah, like that's a good point about, hey, Pascal Siakam could be miffed that he hasn't been extended by the, the Raptors, or at least not extended to a max extension not offered a max extension by the Toronto Raptors would that impact him personally this season well Doug rightly points out that he's showed up like he's at the the workout in Los Angeles he's at summer league he's there he's not sulking any way publicly Gary Trent Jr. is in the same spot now obviously the extension is not maximum for him and we all did or listen I'll just speak for myself I took it as an indication that Gary Trent Jr. wanted to be a member of the Toronto Raptors, that he opted into his deal. That could have very easily been, though, a a, a calculated play that he realized he wasn't going to make the money in free agency that he would have made opting into his deal. And immediately after the opt-in, we heard talks of, hey, they're talking extension, Gary Trent Jr. and the Toronto Raptors. No extension was forthcoming. So the only conclusion you can come to was that Gary didn't really like what the Raptors were selling him on an extension. And boy, yeah, if you're looking at breadcrumbs, if he's not showing up for these offseason workouts, if he's not in Vegas, what does that tell you? Maybe Gary Trent Jr. is going to be the real malcontent. Who knows? Just uh, keeping you apprised of the situation and and something that I'm now very much uh, aware of and, and staying alert to. The other thing is this Sixers situation, which is, oh, man, it's so hilarious. They have not made a conference final since the process, right? Like, despite having these pretty good regular season teams and now an MVP in Joel Embiid, they were damn close against the Raptors, except uh, Kawhi Leonard hit the greatest shot in the history of this franchise and one of the most memorable in the history of the sport and ended Jimmy Butler's tenure in Philadelphia. And... I'd love to know the true story beyond it, but but it, it it does feel like the Sixers had a choice to make Ben Simmons, Jimmy Butler, and they chose Ben Simmons over Jimmy Butler, which in retrospect, in the moment, is all insane. Insane. Jimmy Butler on a team with an eventual MVP and playing pretty close to MVP levels at times, although Marcus Gasol really ate his lunch quite often in that series. Um, Jimmy Butler was the obvious alpha on that team that was within a miracle shot of at least getting to overtime and maybe 
ending up in a conference final and then maybe winning it all and maybe us having very different conversations about both franchises. They decided that they would go with the guy who was a part of the process, Ben Simmons, number one overall selection, over the guy that was clearly made for the postseason, and they've been eating it ever since. And now it's going to cost them, I mean, the entire process era because Keith Pompey was right. Like, the, the process is over now, but this is now... The res- this is the result of the process, let's, let's put it that way, that they're even relevant. And that era appears to be dwindling because James Harden be shocked if he wears a Sixers uniform again in his career. In fact, said he wouldn't in no uncertain terms. And there's really no discernible way for the Sixers to get near-term value that means they're gonna get worse a team that didn't make the conference final again this past season despite having a chance to against the uh, Celtics is going to get worse and Joel Embiid approaching 30 is gonna say to hell with this and will the Raptors be in a position where they can pounce and be a suitor for his services and send enough back to Philadelphia that they feel like it's worth doing that's gonna be the story of next offseason in the NBA without much doubt. All right, when we come back, we'll talk to your friend and mine, Adnan Verk of MLB Network. Uh, Blue Jays are trending in a good direction, at least with the pitching, and did enough offensively to win against uh, a pretty similar Phillies team yesterday. Yankees are now 500. We'll talk to Adnan about his boy, Aaron Boone, and his uh, job security, Uh, among other things. Next, as the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. All right, Bo Bichette. Playing for the Buffalo Bisons today. It's got to be cool for those minor league fans to get to see major leaguers. He had a couple of hits, uh, rounded the bases, went first to home after an RBI double by Ernie Clement. And uh, the Blue Jays shortstop spoke after the game about how his rehab's going. Yeah, I felt good. Um... Obviously, this is a lot different than being in the big leagues. There's, for myself, like the anxiety part of it and just the human nature part of it isn't really there. But um, for the most part, swing felt good, timing felt good. So, like I said, with my knee, feel feel good about it. Yeah, um, I mean, the hope right now is to feel good tomorrow playing shortstop. And um, if that goes well, then uh, hopefully I'll be in Cincinnati. All right, there you go. That's all you need to know. So the rain out yesterday not impacting his targeted return which would be friday in cincinnati against the reds he's going to play shortstop who knows he's going to play all nine innings he's going to play the field tomorrow but man rounding the bases going first to home uh pretty good indication that the knee is feeling a whole lot better blue jays wrapping up the series against the phillies phillies had a two-game sweep over the blue jays in philadelphia earlier this season blue jays trying to return the favor uh as they get aaron nola against their own ace Kevin Gossman tonight down at Rogers Center. Let's talk to our pal Adnan Verk, MLB Network. How's it going, buddy? 
Ben, great to chat with you as always. And thank God Bo's going to come back sooner or later. I'm looking at a stat pack here with some numbers. I know you already know this, but Paul DeYoung is 3 for 41. That's an 077 average with 16 strikeouts since Bo injury. You know when a guy goes down sometimes, you go, no problem, we'll go get a guy, Paul DeYoung. Hey, Carlos is this moment. No, 3 for 41. <laughs> Bo cannot come back soon enough. Thank God he's going to be back soon. Yeah, it's uh, it's not gone well for Mr. DeYoung, who's made the, the plays at shortstop, so that that's that's great. But yeah, they were hoping for a little bit more offensively out of out of a guy that yeah has hit under the Mendoza line the last two years, but has shown power throughout the course of his career. Man, I, I feel like I've had this conversation with you before, but it, it's it's so obvious now with Bobuchet out of the lineup. He's the most important offensive player on this Blue Jays team, and it feels like by by like a wide margin. It's not even close, and I give you credit, because you first said to me about a year ago, hey, is Vladdy overrated or what? Maybe we can couch that in certain ways, but the essence of your argument was yeah. he's a good player, he's not a great player, and that's okay to say sometimes. We just, you think of Vlad as this $300 million guy, and you go, well, maybe he's not what he is. But Bichette has gone from a guy who last year, around this time, was criticized for being up and down, and then, of course, the last two years, he's been tremendous in September. He always finishes strong, and then this year he's been really good from start to finish, and right now he's in the batting race, tied with Deontay Diaz, actually, for the batting title. So I'm with you, man. Like it, it, it's literally, I wouldn't say it's quite reverse, but anybody who follows the Blue Jays with any sort of attention goes, oh no, Bo Bichette is the straw that stirs the drink. Again, Vladdy's a good player. He's capable of hitting some big home runs. There's no question he's important in the offense. But if you can only remove one domino and see the impact, we've seen it when you take out Bo Bichette. Yeah, so it leads me to this, because the, the pitching has been so good and was amazing yesterday. And you say Kikuchi's been one of the best starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball since the All-Star break, and they added Jordan Hicks, who, who struck out the side yesterday before Jordan Romano returned, and he got uh, three straightouts, including a couple of strikeouts as well. Can they hit enough? Like, with Bo Bichette back in the lineup and and with what they're getting this season out of Matt Chapman, George Springer, and, and, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., is this Blue Jays offense good enough in, in your mind to, to do the things we expected out of them, considering the pitching staff? Well, let's focus on the positive first, which was that pitching. You know, best pitching in the bigs, 3.68 ERA is pretty stunning. And their bullpen, 1.31 ERA over their last 11 games. Romano, as you know, coming back, earning the save, is a turn from the IL. And, again, Kikuchi, six innings and one-run ball, I was not expecting that. They are fourth in the majors in starter ERA, 3.78, and bullpen ERA at 3.5. No other team ranks the top five in both categories. That, to me, is stunning to be able to say middle of August, the Blue Jays have the best pitching by ERA and incredible balance in their starters and in their bullpen. I would not have thought the offense is the question mark, but... I think when healthy, their offense should be good enough to take them to the playoffs. But they've got to be careful. The Mariners have that great run where all of a sudden now they close within a couple of games. They've lost a few games. The Yankees have clearly fallen off. The Red Sox are still kind of hanging around, although they've got a tough part of their schedule coming up. The Blue Jays should clearly get this third wild card spot. They are clearly one of the top six teams in the American League. But their offense has to show. And the two guys who, one, has been really solid all year, and one is finally coming around, Whit Merrifield and George Springer. Merrifield averaging two hits during his seven-game hit streak. Two hit wit. 
Since the start of July, 338 average. That's fourth in the American League. Like, terrific what Merrifield's done for them. And Springer, who I have been hard on here on the network, I'm like, he should be a lot better than where he's been. 395 over his last 11 games. His OPS, as you know, Ben's around 700. Springer's, for the money they're paying him, like, he should be a lot better than what he's shown this year. But Merrifield, good story. Springer should get better. Brandon Belt has been terrific this year. Like, their offense should be good enough, especially if their pitching is that good. And, oh, by the way, Gossman pitching today, who's in the mix for the Cy Young. You know what's interesting? So, um, Blue Jays are now seven and a half games back of the Baltimore Orioles, who are having a great season, and, and everybody looks at them as the next juggernaut in the American League East, and they have all these young players, and they, they look great. They, they did a little bit of adding at the deadline, but not as much as maybe their fans would have hoped or, or, or I would have expected. In the back end of the bullpen, great, great, great. You, you look at, you, you compare the two teams, Blue Jays and Orioles, Outside of the, the, the games that they played head-to-head, which you can't just, like, brush, brush off, the Blue Jays are 2-8 and eight against the Orioles this season. But Blue Jays have a better batting average than the Orioles. They have a better OPS. They have the exact same number of homers. And obviously the Blue Jays, in an overall sense, have a way better pitching staff, both in the rotation and I, w- I would say depth-wise out of the bullpen now, too. They don't have Felix Bautista, who's the best reliever, maybe the best pitcher out of both teams. But how how different do you view the two rosters, the Blue Jays and the Baltimore Orioles? Well, it's interesting with Baltimore, you know, Toronto would talk about how good the pitching's been, how surprising it is, top five starters, top five bullpen ERA. With Baltimore, it's the reverse. It's all their offense, right? It's all these hitters that just come at you in droves. And it's amazing because you start to forget guys. Like Adley Rutschman, ahead of the class. Okay, I got that. Switching and catcher, leads on both sides of the ball. Anthony Santander is a terrific hitter. But Hayes is an all-star you forget about. We talked to Cedric Mullins last at MLB tonight. You saw his catch on Sunday. Game-saving catch in the ninth. Home run robbery. And then a walk-up home in the tenth. And I said to him, I go, can I still call you Cedric the Entertainer? And he laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, I love the comedian. I got the whole nickname. Like, it's great. Like, their offense comes in droves. And obviously, you forget about Ryan Melcastle, how good he is. Is. Gunnar Henderson's in the mix for Rookie of the Year. So they're kind of the antithesis in the Jays in that their offense really is the headline, and then their pitching kind of sneaks up on you. Like, you look at their starters, and as of a month ago, they were top five worst in the American League. They've really turned it around, and I think some of the moves that they've made, it looks like they're going to pay dividends. Like, getting Jack Flaherty, mm-hmm. hopefully he works out. I would have preferred they go get Justin Berlander, but listen, Flaherty's a more than capable starter. Gibson's one of the few veterans they have. You throw in Bradish and Wells. And maybe that's good enough. And, oh, by the way, Grayson Rodriguez can throw 98-99. And if he's a rookie that can pitch with that kind of composure, their starters are good enough. Their bullpen, you know, but you near can know. But I love Felix Bautista. He comes out to the whistle from the wire. Like, he doesn't – Omar coming. All of a sudden, Felix is coming. And that guy comes in the game. He's pretty much automatic. So, it's interesting with the Blue Jays. For the last couple of years, it's been young core, Bichette, Flatty, Kevin Biggio. Let's supplement with Matt Chapman. Okay, we're going to be great. We're going to be great. Guess what? Baltimore already is great. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, they beat you guys to it. We thought again another year. No, no. Baltimore has arrived. Tampa Bay is always in the mix. The Yankees will retool this year. Boston, fearsome offense. So the Jays can't say, hey, we'll get there. We'll get there. No, literally, the time is now or next year to make some noise because the O's aren't going anywhere. No, it's, it's so very, very true. Um, and to to that end a little bit, like it does feel like for the second straight year, and I know it didn't work out last year, that the third wild card spot is the place to be. Last year, the the Rays ended up as the final wild card spot, and they of course lost the wild card round to a Cleveland team that also gave the Yankees fits in the, in the DS. But like you you looked at at that as being the the preferable spot as opposed to the Blue Jays facing the Mariners, despite having the home games that they both lost this year. If you're the third. Wild card team, you again get the American League Central winner because the Central stinks. Uh, so you're going to get the Twins likely, unless there's a, a great comeback from from Cleveland. 
And, and then you got maybe like the Rays and, and Astros battling it out. And then the, you look at the brackets, like then, then you're facing the right. Like it, it really does feel like the final wild card spot is the place to be. And to that end, Adnan, as we continue to learn about how this this new wild card format works, should we be tweaking that? Like, should you in back to back seasons, the first two years of this format, should you be incentivized to to end up in the in the final wild wild card spot? And should we should we do some reseeding here? Yeah, no, you're right. The reseeding would definitely help because you don't want to have the team that gets in as the lowest wild card have that advantage. So baseball, I'm sure, will will take a look at a potential retinkering. Remember when they first introduced the wild card, the same thing happened. It was all four teams were equal value, and then that wild card team of Paul Phenopsy, and they go, wait a second. So they're the worst team of the regular season, and all of a sudden now they're in the World Series? That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So you do have to try to find a way to say, like in basketball or hockey, one through eight, this should not all be created equal. You should incentivize the division winner. You can do that in baseball, the home field. But, again, if it's like a best of five, you lose game one, well, there goes home field. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but you're right. The last wild card winner, you shouldn't be fighting for the third wild card if you're a baseball team. Yeah, I, uh, and I wonder how the, the final month plus of the season is going to shake out, especially considering the twer- uh, turmoil that the Rays are in right now. I don't know. Maybe you do want to play them without Shane McClanahan. Of course, we're, we're all waiting to find out what's going on with, with Wander Franco and how that works out. Manuel Margot is going to be out a month. Do you do you look at that Rays team as a potential house of cards? A hundred percent. I mean, they're they're really a shade to the Yankees from a year ago. Remember the Yankees got off that incredible start. You said they might set the record for the most regular season wins. Then they had a terrible July to August, and then were able to bounce back in September. But then in the playoffs barely squeaked by the Guardians in five and were quick fodder against the Astros. Similarly, the Rays this year get out with 35-5. and five. You're like, oh, my God, it's like the 84 Tigers. This team's unstoppable. Then Baltimore catches them. I don't think Baltimore's going to give up that lead. And the Rays, you feel like, hey, they're going to get that wild card spot. But it's kind of shocking how devastating these pitching injuries have been. Like, McClanahan, for me, is as good as any pitcher in the American League. Tommy John, you're not going to see him until opening day 2025. Rasmussen also out. You know, Glassnow was out for a while. Springs is out with Tommy John. Like, how many starters can you lose? And this year, they went away from being, hey, we'll be an opener and just use our bullpens. They actually felt like, no, we're going to use starting pitchers. This will be our mode of success. And then all those injuries have happened. You go out and get Savali. You know, he faced his former team, the Guardians, on Friday, left the lead after five innings. He's been good. But, like, it's pretty shocking to have McClanahan, Rasmussen, and Springs all lost for the season due to elbow surgery. I don't care who you are. And the Rays, we know how good their depth is. Eventually, it catches up to you. And so many of their offensive players were playing above their heads. They're all having career seasons. Now, as you said, Franco's out. You know, some of these other guys have kind of come back down to earth. Uh, Yandy Diaz is still really good. You know, he's tied with Bichette, as I mentioned, that AL batting lead. But after that, there's some holes. And if Manuel Margot now plays in the IL, that means Jonathan Aranda comes up. Like he's hit 194 in 36 games. He's not a particularly good hitter. So once in a while, these injuries will start to impact this Rays team. And I do think they're vulnerable. Uh, injuries have been kind of the story for the Yankees, but it's mostly been they're like they're, they're giving too much money to too many guys that stink because they're really old right now. Holy cow, is that Yankees team uh, in trouble? And you know what? I was looking at, at at the payroll going forward. Adnan, next season they owe over a hundred million dollars to John Carlos Stanton, Carlos Rodon, Josh Donaldson, DJ LeMahieu, Anthony Rizzo, and a guy who's not on their team anymore, Aaron Hicks. I like I feel bad for your boy Aaron Boone because it's not his fault, but it it, it feels like we could be headed for reg- regime change in in the Bronx. Yeah, the biggest thing the Yankees can point to is the injuries. You know, the only the Dodgers have lost more days to injury list than the Yankees. Dodgers 
almost 1650 Yankees over 1500. But there's no question they had great expectations. And now they could have their first losing season since 1992. They're six and a half games out of a wild card. I don't think anyone thinks they're going to come back now. They're a 500 team this late in the season, first time since September of 1995. Now, again, we look at injuries and some bad contracts and all the rest of it. Rodon hasn't worked out. Rizzo, the concussion, killed him for a couple of months. Cortez, Donaldson, Trevino, all in the I.L., but this team is so top-heavy. Like, it's either with Aaron Judge, they're good, and without Aaron Judge, they're a mess. And now you with Aaron Judge back, they can't fix the situation. And their pitching staff, Garrett Cole, should win a Cy Young. And after that, they've got lots of question marks. I don't know what the heck's happened to Severino. Guy's an ERA north of the eight. He's not who he once was. Uh, obviously, I mentioned Nestor's injury. Rodon hasn't worked out. I mean, it, it's been a mess. But I think the Yankees may be able to look in the offseason and go, as painful as it may be, if they are a last-place team, if not quite run it back, what moves can we make? And that's what you're pointing out is Stanton's not going anywhere. LeMahieu's not going anywhere. Donaldson, thankfully, that contract will come off the books after next year. But that $25 million, you're like, oh, my God, it was, just, it was a bad contract. No question about it. What can you do? Where's the tinkering, right? Volpe, you called up. He's your rookie. He's good defensively. He hasn't hit yet. So I don't know what moves they can make, but I'm sure Brian Cash will have to take a hard look because, you know what, this Yankee fan base is not going to be pleased if they're a last-place team. And their active streak of 30 consecutive winning seasons, third-longest streak across the four major sports. The Yankees from 26 to 64, 39 years, and the Habs from 51-52 to 82-83 for our boy Mike Gentile, 39 straight seasons. So... I, I don't think like, regime change may be premature in that they'll say, well, 30 consecutive winning seasons, yeah, it's a bad look for Cashman and Booney, but maybe one more year. But at the same time, I, I don't know if Hal's going to take a last-place finish. I really don't. Well, but, yeah, I, I just don't know what they do in the offseason to get better because I, it's hard to imagine them spending their way out of this because, there are, like I mentioned, the $100 million in guys that are basically sunk costs right now. They have, like, almost $200 million uh, dollars locked up in, in players for next year in 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 uh, like commitments they've already got the free agent class is top heavy right yeah everybody wants Shohei Otani but I don't know if he's gonna go to the east coast and like then you're looking at like Cody Bellinger and Matt Chapman okay I I like both those guys maybe Bellinger more than Chapman but are those guys one like are they are they franchise changers maybe we're we're looking at a situation and and Max Scherzer blew the the top off the plan for the Mets where they are they're like rebuilding next season then looking to the the 2025 season to be competitive again I I don't know is there a scenario where that's the same deal in the Bronx as well that they kind of like do do run it back like you said take a step back next season knowing that there's really nothing they can do until maybe 2025 I really can't see a Yankee team punting an entire season. Like, right now, it's one thing to say, hey, we got six weeks left, and we're going to pretend we're in the playoff mix, but it ain't going to happen. But I can't imagine the Yankees look at 2024 the way Steve Cohen and the Mets will, that, hey, you know what, next year, we'll let our prospects develop, and then 25 will make a run. I just can't see it. Like, I just think the Yankees are built a certain way that, at the very least, they've got to be competitive. Like, what they've been under Cashman is a team that's very good, 90 wins plus, that makes a regular season, and unfortunately hasn't won a World Series since 09. I can't see them deviating too far from that path. So it's almost like Hal might say, okay, spend enough that we're good enough to make the playoffs, but don't spend wildly and crazily so that we're making bad contracts the way we've done in the past. That's my guess. We'll see. Uh, There's not a a lot uh, on the free agent market, though, to to change your franchise uh, from a last-place team to a competitive one for a World Series. We'll see. Uh, Adnan, uh, always great to chat. Talk next week. Been a pleasure, my friend. We'll talk soon. See ya. There's Adnan Verk of MLB Network, getting ready for a show. Yankees stink right now. Luis Severino, not the face of the failures. Who wears the face of that failure? I mean, Carlos Rodon?
who's been hurt basically all season long, and when he's been healthy, he's been bad. He's one of the faces. I would say, though, Giancarlo Stanton. Where's that? Giancarlo Stanton, after what felt like such an incredible coup at the time, that here are the big bad Yankees dealing with Derek Jeter's Marlins, does him a solid and sends him the best slugger in all of baseball. And he's had some moments, I guess. But holy cow, has there ever been a more disappointing back half of a career than Giancarlo Stanton's since being a guy that, what, hit 59 home runs, I believe? I mean, upper 50s, definitely, with the Miami Marlins. Uh, that's a shame. All right, back to the Blue Jays for a second. Again, wrapping up the two-game series against the Orioles tonight down at Rogers Center. There's a lot. <laughs> I keep bringing up the Orioles when when it concerns the Blue Jays because there's something I'm not quite getting here or something that deserves illuminating. Part of it is that, yeah, it does definitely feel like the Orioles are just miles and miles better than the Blue Jays. And I wonder if so much of that is the head-to-head meetings, which are not nothing. It's not like, oh, well, that's that's not a true indication of the talent difference between the two. No, it's like as good as we're going to get when you actually see the two teams on the baseball field playing baseball. So, yeah, two and eight. That's why it feels very different, the two rosters. But then you do a little deeper digging, and it's hard not to really think that there's a lot of similarities or that the Blue Jays are honestly better constructed than the Orioles. Like I said, all the offensive stats in an overall sense would point towards the Blue Jays except for hitting with runners in scoring position. And unless you're going to tell me that, yeah, everything I've come to understand about hitting with runners in scoring position, that's not true, that the Orioles are just better at it because they've discovered this skill that only they possess and the Blue Jays are fatally flawed in that regard, then um, unless that's true, I'm going to think that, okay, that's just kind of, there's an element of, of flukiness to that. Plus, if you do separate the head-to-head meetings between the two, you, then you really start to, to understand the similarities between these two teams. Blue Jays, on the season, against teams who are not the Baltimore Orioles, who, again, they are 2-8 and eight against, and they have one more series, so they can, at best, finish 5-8. and eight. But at this point, Blue Jays' record against everybody else in Major League Baseball that is not the Baltimore Orioles are 65 and 46. The Orioles, who own a seven and a half game lead in the American League East over the Toronto Blue Jays, their record, when you extract the two and eight record or the eight and two record for them against the Blue Jays, is 66 and 44. Blue Jays, 65 and 46. Orioles, 66 and 44. So that's two games in the loss column. You're essentially watching two teams having the identical season except in the 10 games that they played each other. That's the season. So, like, when we made a big deal about that four-game series at Rogers Center and talking about, hey, hey, the uh, the division's on the line here, and, boy, it's hard to imagine them really giving the Orioles a run for their money in the American League East if they don't at least take three out of four, and, of course, they lost three out of four. Yeah, it's, that's... The the entire season, the entire difference between the Blue Jays at this point feeling like they're meeting expectations, which was to win the division and then get into the playoffs and win a World Series, and what feels like a disappointment despite being in the postseason are those 10 games head-to-head. Blue Jays, 
Orioles because you take those out and they're having essentially the same season. And yeah, there's things that are trending in a better direction for the Orioles because maybe Grayson Rodriguez is figuring it out and some of the young players offensively and Cedric Mullins coming back is a, is a huge deal. But yeah, Yanir Cano isn't having quite the year he was having earlier on in the season. And even Felix Bautista is is vulnerable to some extent at a pretty notable blown save against the Houston Astros. And the Blue Jays are also trending not upward in an offensive direction, scoring the game-winning run on a hit-by-pitch with the bases loaded yesterday, but trending in a good direction when it comes to the pitching, both in the rotation and in the bullpen. So it's it's really hard for me to sit here and say you got two teams that are worlds and worlds apart because it's just it, – it, it's, it's not the reality, despite the fact that when you see those two teams on the field head-to-head, boy, howdy. Has it, has it felt like it? There, there's still time, though, I guess, for, for the Blue Jays to make it respectable as far as uh, cutting into the division lead. But like I mentioned to Adnan, I don't know how much better you want to get. Unless it's winning the division. That's good. Avoiding the wild card round altogether would be good. But I don't think you want any part of being the first or second wild card here. And even with the, the injuries and the weirdness that's happening in Tampa, I, I don't No, thanks on the Rays, and certainly no thanks to the defending World Series champions or if they catch the Rangers, the Rangers who are pretty juggernaut-ish when you consider their offense and the the fact that Max Scherzer looks maybe not vintage, but a lot better than he looked um, in Queens. And Major League Baseball's got to do something about that. Like, if we're we're, we're getting closer to this, this balanced schedule and everybody playing their division less and less, and playing everybody in Major League Baseball at least once throughout the course of a 162-game regular season, yeah, you got to make the playoffs a little more fair. And it's fine. Like, you still get a playoff berth if you win the American League Central, but I, I think if we just seed them as the final wild-card round playoff team, what, what's wrong with that? Then that makes sense. Then there is an incentive to be the top wildcard team, because then you get to play the Minnesota Twins. Like, it seems like a pretty simple fix. Um, I don't know why we don't do that next season. All right, when we come back, we'll talk to the man who first broke the story that John Herdman is talking to Toronto FC, and uh, we'll see if that has progressed beyond informal conversations between the head coach of the Canadian men's national team and the biggest professional team in this country. And we'll also talk about like the time crunch that team Canada might be in because, okay, world cup's not until 2026, but you got some nations league games that are coming up in November. And if you want to play in the Copa America, you actually, you have to play well in nations league. Uh, So we'll talk to Josh cloak next of the athletic as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis Sportsnet 590, the fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fans. John Herdman still a potential fit the next head coach for Toronto FC outlined some of the reasons yesterday. Um, And as I mentioned before the break, 
this team is going to make a World Cup, or at least Team Canada is going to make a World Cup again, most likely. We haven't seen definitively whether all the host nations are going to get automatic qualification, but you would imagine they would. So 2026 in the World Cup again. But before that, CONCACAF Nations League in November with a chance to qualify for the 2024 Copa America, which will be in the United States. So those, those are important games, and they're fast approaching. So I'm sure the Canadian brass would like to know if they have their head coach. Uh, let's talk to Josh Cloak of The Athletic. How's it going, Josh? Not bad. Sitting here in northern Saskatchewan, just checking out the ducks on the lake. It, uh, good. Good little Wednesday here. Is yeah. it Wednesday? Uh, it is. I had to double-check myself. Uh <laughs> August is a good time to be in northern Saskatchewan, uh, certainly better than January. But, yeah, no, I, I'm glad there are ducks to, to be seen uh, today. Uh, you, you're all over this this John Herdman thing. Um, your guess, like, I don't know if you want to put a percentage chance on it. Do you think he takes the TFC jobs? Like, this is such an interesting story. So when I first heard, when, when someone first told me, you know, the, about John Herdman being in the mix. I refuse to believe it. And, and I suppose that's just a little bit, you know, the job of a reporter to be skeptical about stuff. But, you know, when you hear this, you're, you're thinking, well, okay, why would he do this? A, he has a World Cup coming up and he's never been shy about the fact that, you know, you don't get home World Cups often and they can change the landscape of the sport. And he's in a pretty plum gig. Like, he's arguably the most important person in Canadian soccer. So why would he do this? But, you know, this then the, the, the people talking about this don't really go away. And you start to understand that for weeks, months now, John Hurton has kind of been laying the seeds of discontent with Canada soccer. We heard it after the Nations League finals when, you know, Canada was outclassed by the United States. And John Herdman, you know, went on the defense essentially saying that, you know, Canada wasn't providing the right amount of resources to be serious about competing in the 2026 World Cup. And if that happened with almost any other big nation, right, where a head coach calls out their federation, that head coach's days are numbered. So you kind of get the sense that John Herdman is unhappy. And then you look at Toronto FC and you say, well, this is a team that I think has never been lower. We can talk about the days of 2012, but... this is Toronto FC's worst season, considering their payroll, considering the expectations, considering just how bad the season has gone. And that's a pretty plum gig for any coach to step into because there's only one place to go, and that's up. And John Herdman is a builder. So then the job, then the job prospect starts to make a lot more sense. He would get a pay raise, undoubtedly, right? John Herdman was, I believe, the 24th or 25th highest paid coach at the last World Cup. So he's going to get a pay raise. Um, so when you start to think about it like that, you think maybe this is more and more of a possibility. Um, I did have someone yesterday, you know, after I, you know, broke the story that this is a possibility. I had someone reach out to me and, and I haven't been able to confirm this, but I had someone suggest that John Herdman, it was John Herdman himself who approached Toronto FC and, wow. and said, you know, I, I, I want to, to hear more about this job. Um, that could suggest any number of things, which we'll probably talk about. But so it just it starts to make a little bit more sense, right? Yeah, uh, and I, I talked about this a little bit yesterday with Oliver Platt. Yeah, like okay, so the, yeah, there's right. the, the 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 discontent, obviously, with the the federation, uh, the uncertainty there, and and yep. the, maybe the moving to a, a, a club uh, so that he gets some club experience and and for a potential move, maybe to 
uh, Europe again uh, and 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 uh, eventual uh, manager's job with uh, one of the English clubs, uh, Northern England. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I will yep. say, though, all of this is indicating to me whether it's this job or it's another job, I, I don't expect to see John Herdman as the head coach of Team Canada in 2026 anymore. Uh, Josh, like I, I, I put it at less than fifty percent that he is the the manager of the Canadian national team for this home World Cup. Now, I don't, I don't know how you feel about it. So here's where I'm at with that, and and again, I've had a few people suggest this to me as well. When John Herdman takes over the team in 2018, and then when he gets them to the World Cup, talking about qualification, his stock was through the roof. But then after that, you look at just, look, let's be honest, how badly the results or how bad the results were at the World Cup. The Belgium performance was fantastic, but the results afterwards, tactically especially, were really, really disappointing, right? And then the Nations League was a a genuine disappointment. You have to start to wonder, does John Herdman still have the ears of every single player in the dressing room? I'm not suggesting he doesn't. But that's the next question that, that, that I have, you know, I guess in, in the process of this reporting is what is John Herdman's standing look like with the men's national team? And it's, it's a little bit inevitable, too, when your players themselves are progressing to really, really high leagues. And a lot of his players have graduated to, to better teams. And, and Jonathan David, I think, is going to be the next one. Tejon Buchanan to move up. And when that happens, the level of coaching that you get at these top clubs in Europe is fantastic. And then you return to, you know, your national team. And John Herdman is a fantastic motivator. He is a fantastic man manager. What he isn't yet is a fantastic tactical manager, right? And we saw that at the World Cup, you know, when he didn't play a three-man midfield against Croatia. We saw that in the Nations League. And again, I'm not suggesting that he has, but I, I'm wondering if he still has the ears of, of everyone in the national team locker room. He's a smart man, and if he feels like he doesn't, then you wonder if he says, well, you know, if, if things are not going to get any better come 2026, and you couple in, you know, the fact that the resources within the program are lackluster at best, he's a young coach. He might say to himself, look, what what are my options long-term here? I, I need to be thinking about myself long-term. Again, these are all suggestions. I don't have this as a fact. It's a suggestion, but it does it does add a lot to the conversation, right? No, 100% it does. And, yeah, it's amazing how quickly the bloom could come off the rose for a guy. For sure. <laughs> Led uh, the Canadian men to the World Cup for the first time in 30-plus years after all his successes with the women's team. And, man, all the, the glowing things that all the players said about him. Like, I, I talked to more than a few national team players who were talking about how granted it it, a lot of it was like as you say motivational stuff and maybe not tactically and and maybe maybe that's what we're learning about john herdman but that being said um yeah maybe maybe there's better tactical managers for for this national team out there maybe yeah but also hard to imagine the the federation that's like claiming that they may have to, to to declare bankruptcy, having the resources to go out and get that guy. Like, how how are they... Imp- like, if it's true, let's, let's do the hypothetical here, that part yep. of this is John Herdman is not good enough tactically for a national team that's ready to take the next step. I don't, how can the Canadian Soccer Association go out and get a guy who's better? They don't have the money, it seems. 
that's where it gets really concerning. And, and you know, I, I, I want to be clear. I want to give John Herdman the benefit of the doubt here that he can dig in and improve tactically over the next three years if he does stay. It's not even three years, right? Copa America is coming up next year. And Copa America is going to be a, a very much kind of make-or-break tournament ahead of the World Cup to determine whether this team is actually ready to perform and ready to get out of the group stage at the World Cup. And I think that is the next stage for John Herdman is is understanding how to tactically motivate his players in a way he never has before. And I think after what he did with this men's team, he deserves the benefit of the doubt that, that, that he can get there. But you're right. John Herdman, it's been reported, 20, 25th or 26th highest paid coach, around 700000 um, was his salary. And again, that's just been reported. You know, you're talking about the best tacticians with with national teams in the world earning four or five million, you know, dollars a year. Canada soccer simply cannot afford that. So, so what do they do? Do they stick with you know the assistant Mauro Biello, who's you know pretty highly regarded and works with the forwards, right? Is that kind of a a soft landing for the national team? Um, you know, is the fact that they brought in that that, that John Herdman brought in Phil Neville? Right, who who was ousted from Inter Miami, but is obviously, you know, was very well respected as a player with the English national team, and he brought him in to be an assistant um, in the Nations League. Like, to, is someone like that a possibility? Because some experience there with Canada, you're taking, you're going to take on someone. I think that's either maybe young, an up and comer, or someone that is going to take a pay cut because they understand that look, I'm going to be the face of a team in a home World Cup. So it's great exposure for me. Either way, you're probably not getting your most desired candidate. But I guess the flip side there is, you know, come 2026, Davies, David Buchanan, these players are going to be in their prime. And and that's going to be attractive for any coach, right? I would think so. Um, But yeah, a a guy is seemingly angling his way out, although, yeah, maybe, maybe pushed out partly as well. I wonder what becomes of John Herdman's legacy in this country. I mean, he'll remain in this country, which is part of it, too, I, I guess. You know, this is a if you're going to have an off ramp uh, before a World Cup, it, it kind of makes sense for it to be Toronto FC. And maybe there's something to like turning around the women's program, turning around the men's program and then turning around the biggest professional club in, in the country. Like maybe that's like a coaching treble in itself. We haven't talked about like what a coup this would be for Toronto FC, for Bill Manning and Toronto FC, right? Like, is there anybody in, in Toronto professional sports right now that needs a win more than Bill Manning? No. Right? He, he, right? So you, you bring in John Herdman. And what's interesting here is, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, laying seeds. Bill Manning has been talking for years now about how come 2026, he wants Toronto FC to be kind of a place where a lot of national team players play because he knows the financial opportunities that, that come with, you know, hosting games at BMO field. He knows what happens if there's more Jonathan Osorio's, you know, playing on, on Toronto FC, this would be a coup for him because it, it gets, you know, it gets more fans in BMO field. It raises the profile of the club. And again, this is a fantastic opportunity for any coach to take over Toronto FC because they're at their lowest. They're going to spend. They're going to spend as, as much as almost any other team in MLS. So you know that you're going to have resources. Um, but again, John Herdman is at his best, and we've seen it. He's been at his best when he's building things from the ground up. That's where motivational 
you know, his, his motivational approach comes into play. So that's why it would make a lot of sense. And that's why if you're a Toronto FC, you probably don't have to sell it that hard because you can probably offer more resources than Canada soccer. You can offer a great profile. Um, and I, I do think this is probably the next step. And John Herdman has never shied away from the fact that he wants to get into club coaching. So a lot of it makes sense on paper, um, but it's, I don't know. To me, it's just that home world cup lingering like that. That's an opportunity that doesn't come around very often. And I just wonder if John says to himself, you know what, that's too good of an opportunity, both for a team and for his own profile to turn, turn up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what else I, I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about, well, and, and there was more to it than this, but I was like, hey, Brendan Shanahan decided to fire Kyle Dubas when Kyle Dubas said he wasn't sure if he was all in. Um, seems pretty clear that John Herdman's not all in on the on this this Canada soccer job, and I don't know how it works with his contractual obligations and what Canada soccer does owe him, and whether there's an out and yada yada yada. Like, I mean, even outside of of the the people making the decisions at Canada soccer, you, you talked about maybe the, some of the players starting to sour on him. I, how, how does he? What is his standing when he returns to this team and if he, in fact, is not the next head coach of Toronto FC and already we, we had the New Zealand national team thing and then this that is like, okay, we, we can say the, the New Zealand thing was nothing, but like, yeah, your reporting has been reported by multiple others. Nobody's denied it. I, this is clearly a guy that's not 100% all in on this national team program. So the interesting thing comparison uh, is that you know, John Herdman's boss right now is his former assistant coach in Jason DeVos. So it's very, I don't know if easy is the right word. I'm going to use that term, but it was probably a little easier for Brendan Shanahan to ax Kyle Dubas than it would be for Jason DeVos to ax John Herdman. Because again, I I mentioned it before and I stand by it. John Herdman is probably the most person in Canadian soccer right now. He's probably the most influential as well. And if you're Jason DeVos, you're, you would be axing someone that you've worked under that you, we know he's very, very close with. And then if you're, John, if you're Jason DeVos and you have to make this decision, which I don't know, I, I have no information to suggest that he would at all, you know, you'd then have to go back to your board and say, well, we've just lost the guy that got us to the World Cup. Yeah. Where do we go from here? Right. And Jason DeVos is the interim general secretary as well. So it's it's a little more complicated than the Dubis Shanahan comparison. I see where you're going, but there's a few more layers to it. Um, and it is interesting, you know, when, when the New Zealand stuff came out and that was a little clearer, that was, that was, you know, the New Zealand uh, football federations saying we have John Herdman. He has agreed. And then, you know, John Herdman had to deny that. I don't know for sure if he's interviewed. I have to be clear there. I, I, I know that there's been talks. Mm-hmm. I think there's some mutual interest. I know other people have reported that he's interviewed. I don't think he has because that would be a breach of his contract, I think. Um, so, that again, there's a few more layers to it, right? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of layers. But this is... Super, super interesting story. It's a, it's kind of a depressing story as well. Like, uh, not a, not if you're a TFC fan, um, because that's good. Like, yeah, that this this team again is going to try and regroup, and why wouldn't they? They're, they're owned by MLSE, and they got deep pockets, yep. and 
yeah, that that that's all well and good. But man, the excitement kept building and crescendoed with a, a World Cup berth for this Canadian national team. And it's just been nothing but bad news story after bad news story after bad news story. And we'll see how this one ends. I do I do wonder, like, financially, does this, this team get on better standing if it figures out, uh, if it resolves the contract dispute be- between the players uh, and particularly the, the men's and women's team coming to an agreement? Like, does does that make everything... You know, all the, the Jason DeVos talking about bankruptcy stuff, like, does that go away if, if the players come to an agreement? Is that like the white whale that we're all waiting on? Well, probably not, because that, that agreement is going to cost them a lot of money. And by them, I mean Canada soccer. Right? If, if, they, and if they can get the men's and women's national team to, to agree to agreements that, that do offer equal pay, that's going to be really, really expensive, right? That we know that they have, you know, pitched a, a an agreement to the women's team that would make them one of the highest-paid women's teams in the world, right? And the men's team are not going to expect, you know, much less. They're going to expand some, you know, agreement um, because this 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 men's national team has a level of I don't know seriousness is the right word, right? That that, that perhaps teams in the past didn't have an awareness. I guess we could say we, they certainly have more talent, more globally recognized talent. So I don't think an agreement is just going to make all the finances kind of clear. There's there's still a need for this team to raise more money that doesn't fall in the agreement. I'm not suggesting, you know, that the agreement is the root of all the, the kind of everything that's gone wrong here. But they're going to need to find more money, and I don't think the agreement is just going to, you know, turn – you know, turn the sky into one of sunshine and rainbows, right? There's still a lot to figure out within this program, and there's, you know, and it's and it's going to be expensive no matter what. Uh, well, it, it's certainly an interesting time, if if not a, a, a super optimistic one, <laughs> for for the Canadian uh, Soccer Association. Uh, Josh, great reporting on this. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, go back to the Ducks. Okay, I appreciate you meeting you all. All right, see you, man. All right, there's Josh Cloak. Of the athletics. So that's a new little wrinkle to the whole John Herdman dealio. So he, we already knew this. Displeased with what's happening with Canada soccer right now. Who wouldn't be? Talking about bankruptcy, infighting, not playing all the friendlies that they could, playing, in fact, none in September, where you got other teams playing three or four. I get that but that it could be headed both directions that maybe the players look at the talent that exists within this team, within this program, looks at the lack of success over those three matches in Qatar outside of the Belgium game. And boy, we had to reevaluate that after the performance Belgium put on throughout the course of that group stage. But that maybe while John Herdman was at the helm of the most successful tenure for the Canadian men's national team in recent history and was also at the helm of the Canadian women's team for some great successes as well, that maybe the, a lot of that had to do with timing and things that weren't exactly putting your hands on the buttons when it comes to tactics for either team. And I don't know. Like, I don't know enough about soccer tactics to tell you that's the case, but Josh does and has talked to enough people that do know and said that, well, tactically, that was a team that left a lot on the table. 
And if the players are starting to sense that, another reason why it might be the perfect time for John Herdman to say goodbye to the Canadian men's national team, despite the fact that we have a World Cup upcoming, and if they're not paying them enough and they don't have enough resources and the players start to hate your guts, plus now you return to them, you know, you're going to tell them you're fully committed till 2026. Who the hell's going to believe John Herdman if he comes back to Alfonso Davies and says, I'm in this for the long term. You can count on me despite the fact that I was playing games with my contract status when it came to the New Zealand national team. And then I got maybe some bump in pay or some contractual certainty. And then like months later, I also had a dalliance with a pro team in Toronto, but I'm back. Listen to what I say. I'm the face of this uh, organization. That might be a tough sell as well. It's, it's one of the more interesting stories in Canadian sports, honestly, uh, in the upcoming Months. All right, Blue Jays and Phillies getting set for game two of their two-game series before the off day tomorrow. Aaron Nola against Kevin Gossman, and we have a lineup for you. In it, we do not find a Matt Chapman. Really messed his finger up, I guess, dropping that dumbbell in the wrong spot on the weight rack. So Santiago Espinal back in there at third base. Paul DeYoung is playing shortstop and batting ninth, and at second base, again, man, I, it's, I want to see Davis Schneider, but it's, it's really hard to argue with Kevin Biggio right now. Fifth is, is a little high, but yeah, no, no Bo Bichette, no Matt Chapman. Kevin Biggio back in there playing second base and hitting fifth for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays with Whit Merrifield naturally leading off and playing left field. I, I, I'm not out on Davis Schneider by any stretch of the imagination, and I think at the very worst... He's maybe even a, a right-handed Kevin Biggio. You know who would sign up for that? Davis Schneider, who uh, has, by sheer force of will, managed to become a major leaguer despite being a 28th-round pick. Yeah, would he accept an everyday role, at least on a major league roster, as like an end-of-the-roster player? Of course he would, but I think there's a non-zero possibility that that's the case and if that is the case then they're like head-to-head matchup worthy those two Kevin Biggio and David Schneider and maybe platoon partners at second base and with the righty on the hill and especially the way Kevin Biggio's hit like since May like this is not a tiny sample anymore we're talking about 49 games in which Kevin Biggio has hit 271 with the 377 on base and a 466 slug playing adequate defense at second base yeah, I want to see more David Schneider. I, I'd, I'd like to know more about what he is. But yeah, you're trying to win a baseball game. And no Bo Bichette and certainly no Matt Chapman. Like if Matt Chapman was in the lineup, then you just throw like a Santiago Espinal at shortstop maybe and Kevin Bichette at third base. Probably not though either. We'll see if we see uh, David Schneider again <laughs> as a Blue Jay this season because off day tomorrow and then Bo Bichette's going to be back and uh, presumably Matt Chapman as well. All right. Blair and Barker will get you set for another game against the Phillies before the off day tomorrow. I will be back tomorrow with another edition of the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.